Chapter 3 of The Man Who Missed It by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 A fool and a half breed, answered the trapper, evidently enjoying the curiosity of his guest. Yes, a downright fool who conceded in his craziness that he was an animal, and so wouldn't dress himself like a rational being, but had managed to get himself inside a panther's skin, and he had done it clever, too for even his face was covered with the pelt, and if he hadn't opened his mouth and let out a scream of his gibbering as I drawed on him, he'd have found his senses in eternity quick as powder could burn. For dusky as it was, I'd got the line right, and my finger was getting heavy on the trigger. Yes, his gibbering saved him, for he certainly looked like the animal whose skin he wore in the place of his clothes, and the panthers and me have got a sort of running account, and I wiped the slate as the storekeepers say in the settlements, as often as I get a chance. "'What did you do with him, John Norton?' asked the man. "'Do with him?' exclaimed the trapper. "'I couldn't do anything with him. You see, he was crazy as a loon, and he hadn't no sense. You couldn't get him to talk like a knowing person, but he'd howl and screech and gibber and jump around you and make a spring at you as if the old feller himself was in him, and I certainly guess he was by the way he acted.' Did you ever see a crazy person, friend? Yes, we had three lunatics in the poor house, replied the man. I don't understand you, said the trapper. I said, returned the man, we had three crazy folks in the poor house. Certain, certain, I understand, returned the trapper. No, it don't make much difference what you call them. One name's as good as another when a man has lost his senses. For all that's worth naming has sort of gone out of him. I shouldn't wonder if lunatics was a pretty good name for him, but we call them crazy folks here in the woods. But don't you forget to tell me how you got out of the poorhouse, for atween the straw and the starving and the church member and the lunatics, you must have had an infernal time, and I'd like to know how you got out of it. It came about this way, said the man. It was the law of the town that when any pauper child reached the age of fourteen, he should be apprenticed to some trade by the town authorities, or should be bound out to a farmer unless he was adopted into some family where his support should be guaranteed. Well, I had lived two years in the poorhouse, and the time had come for me to be sent out. And one day in early spring I was sitting on the south side of the house whittling. I used to whittle a great deal. I had a great knack for making things with my knife. You know, some boys have a great knack at whittling. "'Certainly,' said the trapper. "'There's a man up on the St. Regis that they say has been whittling for more than fifty years steady. A trapper that I met on Deadwood was telling me this fall that he knowed him, and he said he would whittle all the time, that he'd stop in his eating and go to whittling, that he'd get up in the middle of the night and go to whittling. And he said, but I conceit that he may have stretched it a little, that the man started to go down to the store one morning and that about halfway down there there was an old pipperage stump. Well, he'd come along to the stump. You see, he'd seed it a good many times, and he had kind of a hankering to get at it. So when he got in front of the stump, he stopped and begun to look at it. And arter he'd looked at it for a few minutes, sort of earnest-like, he fetched his jackknife out of his pocket, and arter rubbing it a few times up and down on the calf of his boot to get the edge right, he began to whittle at the stump. Did you ever whittle a bit of pepperage, friend? I don't think I ever did, said the man. Well, responded the trapper, 
Then you have no idea what pepperage wood is. I made a ramrod once of pepperage, and it took me nigh all winter off and on to dress the pesky thing smooth, and arter I'd got it all right, I polished it off with a bit of sanded buckskin. I sod it up again the edge of the table, and in less than two minutes, Rover, when he was a pup then, who was cutting up his antics around the room, run again that ramrod and broke it square off in the middle. What did you do then? asked the stranger, laughing as much at the expression on the trapper's face as at the humor of his experience. I didn't do anything, responded the trapper. You see, there wasn't anything I could do that would sort of relieve me. There's some feelings that a man can express, but there's some you can't get out of you in words. Then I had kind of an idea if I said anything I might get mad, for I was a good deal riled inwardly, and I think talking sort of helps a man to get mad when he's riled, and the less you say under such circumstances the better, I conceit. Perhaps it is, said the man. But what did the man do who started the whittle the pepperage stump? Remember, I don't vouch that it's gospel truth, I'm telling you, for I had it second-hand, like, and I've noted that things that come second-hand be very apt to get a good deal mixed, but the trapper that camped with me on Deadwood said that the man whittled at that stump all day, and then he built a fire and whittled at it all night, and that when his wife come to look him up, for she was a little worried what had become of him, he sent her back arter some vittles, and just camped down on that stump and whittled at it nigh on to a week, until he had whittled it clean down to the roots. And then he went down to the store and got him the pound of sugar he started for, and went back home as if nothing had happened. Well, said the man laughing, and his poor thin face marked with its lines of strength and the lines of weakness alike, took the finest illumination when he smiled. I don't think I ever whittled like the man the trapper told you about, but I used to love to whittle, and I have made many curious things with my jackknife. And one day, as I was saying, I was sitting on the south side of the poorhouse, whittling. I was making a top that I could spin in the air. It was hollow inside, and I cut holes in it through which the air could enter in a strong current when in revolution, and other holes through which it could pass out. And I found that these holes might be cut in such a way that the top would make a very pleasant sound when it was spinning, and it used to spin a great while and it would go up a great ways into the air. And the longer it went, the faster it spun. Lord, said the trapper, that was funny. I should even most think you might have made one that would never have stopped. I thought so too, John Norton, said the man. I thought so too, and I really think it might be done, but I am not certain. I've come so nigh doing a great many things and missed them after all that I am not so positive as I used to be. That's it, friend, said the trapper. Years makes a man uncertain about a good many things that seemed easy when he was younger. It is true, responded the man gravely. We learn the limitations of our own powers only after many trials. But I have noticed, and I often tell Lucky, that what is impossible at one period of a man's existence becomes easy for him to do at another. And it may be that by and by, if a man keeps learning and trying and gaining power, he will be able to do everything he undertakes. That looks reasonable for certain, said the trapper. I shouldn't wonder, continued the old man with the slyest of all twinkles in his eyes. 
I shouldn't wonder if you made a top in eternity as big as a barrel or a shanty and set it going so that it would never fetch up. The man was too profoundly engaged interiorly, discussing in his mind the possibilities of his invention, to notice the humorous incredulity of the trapper's remark. And after a moment's pause, during which he stooped and caressed the head of the dog, he resumed. I was sitting one day, as I was telling you, south of the poorhouse and the sun whittling out atop, when a man came through the gate into the yard, and, stopping in front of me, asked me what I was doing. I told him I was making a top. He looked at it curiously for a moment and said, This is a very queer-looking top, my boy. I don't understand the principle on which you are making it. I don't know what you mean by principle, sir, I said, but it will spin very fast and will spin in the air, and I can almost make it sing a tune. I never saw a top spin in the air, returned the man. I don't think yours will. If it will, I will give you a name for it. It will spin in the air, I said, jumping up and setting the spring. See here? And I sent it up into the air with all the strength I could command. And it went up and up. Heavens and earth, said the trapper. Did it actually go out of sight? You are to have invented something, as you called it, to have pulled the thing down arter a while. Or it'd be kind of a losing operation to spin em for certain. Oh, said the man, it came down after a while. But what seemed to astonish the gentleman most was that it played one set of tunes going up and another set of tunes coming down. Your top was a good deal like human beings, said the trapper. Perhaps so, said the man, smiling pleasantly into the face of the old trapper. But be that as it may, the gentleman was very much astonished, and he said that I had not only made a top, but discovered a new principle of aerial pressure, a principle of great value, he said, not only for the entertainment of the young, but with possible industrial uses in its application which would be of commercial value. And he said he'd named the top according to the principles and results it suggested, and he called it the Aerial Melophonal Top. Lord, said the trapper, that was a ripper of a name. Did the man act natural-like arter he got out? I think you ought to have done something for you arter giving such a name to your top. He did, said the man earnestly. He did more for me than any man that ever lived. What did he do for you? queried the trapper. He took me from the poorhouse and took me to his home, and that home he gave to me. And in it I had joy, and in it I had suffering. And the joy was the finest I ever had and the pain was the sharpest I ever felt. But the joy I had came from his strength, and the pain I had came from my weakness. Yes, he took me from the poorhouse, and he gave me a home. Do you know what a home is, John Norton? Certain, replied the trapper. Here be a home. And the old man looked affectionately at the two hounds, and then he looked at the wall from which the two picture frames hung, the one filled and the other empty and he repeated as if more to himself than to his guest, "'Certain, here be a home.' The stranger's eyes had followed the direction of the trapper's glance as he looked at the hounds, and also as the old man lifted his eyes to the wall on which the filled and empty picture frames were hanging. His eyes lingered on the frames for a moment, and in the quickness of his sympathy he sensed the circumstances suggested by the face of Herbert and the empty frame hanging by its side.' 
and the loving glance which the old man had given them, and he said, speaking to his host, "'Yours?' "'Yes, the boys be mine,' said the trapper. "'One alive and one dead.' "'The boys be both living,' said the trapper. "'Where are they?' asked the man. "'Henry camps in the settlements,' responded the trapper. "'The lad camps higher up.' There was a pause for a moment, and then the two men, so unlike in appearance, so unlike in fact, so unlike in opinions, so wildly apart in education, both seasoned with years and white-headed, looked involuntarily into each other's eyes a moment, and then the stranger said, I understand, and then there was another pause. Not an unpleasant study for an artist, the two aged men looking into the firelight, and looking beyond the firelight with the far-sightedness of untechnical but profoundest faith, the great logs all aglow, the hounds sleeping on the hearth, the stranger's dog sitting erect with his large, bright eyes on the face of his master, the flashes of firelight flaming and fading on the wall, and playing hide-and-seek with the shadows in the corner, and through the window a glimpse of the white world outside, the moon and the cold blue sky, and the scintillating stars shining brightly down. For several minutes the silence lasted, and then the stranger said, "'You have found a home, John Norton,' where most find only a hut, for you have brought love into it, and the angels of heaven would be homeless in the celestial mansions if love was not with them in the places of their abode. And in the dwelling of the man who took me from the poorhouse, I found love, the love between husband and wife, which I had never seen, the love of parents for a child, and the child's love for parents, nor had I ever seen that before, and I found more, John Norton. I could not believe it at first. It was so strange. Love for the outcast. Love for the pauper. Love for the boy whose father and mother were in the depths of the sea, and who had found kicks and curses and cruelty from the time he was old enough to be kicked and cursed and ill-treated, but had never found love. And here the man broke down, his lips twitched, and for a moment he struggled against his feelings, and then he placed his long, thin fingers over his face, rested his elbows on his knees, and wept. His mute companion lifted his muzzle to the thin hands spread over the face and lapped the tears that fell through between the thin fingers and trickled down the back of the thin hands. The trapper never even looked towards his guest, even with the innate modesty of true reverence, half averted his face, as if he would not intrude even with a glance into the sacred enclosure of the man's griefs. After a while the man raised his head, wiped the tears from his eyes with the sleeve of his coat, placed both hands on either side of his dog's face, and caressed him for a moment, saying, Lucky you are a good dog. Lucky you are the best dog in the world. And then to the trapper, John Norton, Will you overlook the exhibition of my weakness? I am not as strong as I used to be, and the memories of that far-off and happy day which I had in the home of my benefactor overcame me. Friend, said the trapper, I live nigh on to eighty year, and I've consorted with many people, and I've seen the joys and the sorrows of my kind, 
and I've seen strong men weep like women, and there be grief that is stronger than courage, and the tears that be honest be for a man's honor, and I honor you in your grief, and I respect you in your sorrows. I trust you found the home of the man that took you in a pleasant place to live in. I did, I did, I did, exclaimed the man. Only he that seeth all things and knoweth the feelings of all hearts knoweth the joys that I found in that house. There I found books and opportunities of learning, and I became as a son to my benefactor, and there I lived ten years, and in those ten years I found the possibilities of heaven. I studied and learned and grew wise. The man was a scholar himself, and he taught me all his wisdom. And his wisdom was not only the wisdom of learning, but the wisdom of knowing and of inventing. And at that I was quicker than he, and together we explored the secrets of nature and mingled its forces in skillful combination and directed their strength in a hundred ways for our amusement and for human good. With him I found what was in the air and in the earth and in the subtle elements that are not named. And we gave names to these elements that were not known, and we gave forms to powers that were not embodied for man's amusement and for man's benefit. And we found startling things, John Norton, things in the air and the water that no one knew. I don't understand what you could find out in water, said the old trapper. That is, anything that ordinary folks don't see. John Norton, exclaimed the man, do you know what is in water? There's a spring over on Silver Mountain at the foot of the ledge that I run across last year as I was fetching my trail through from the Lawrence, the bottom of which was as yellow as a turnip. It was getting on toward night, and as the spring run a good stream out of it, I conceded I'd better camp down there. It had been a good deal of a tramp, for I'd been taking up a line, and I had twenty or thirty pelts and nigh on to as many traps on my back to say nothing of the flour and the venison and the camp fixins and the pack. Well, I threw up a brush shanty and started a fire and, and dipped a pail of water in and set it to boiling, for I thought I'd stir in a few leaves of the tea that Henry brought in from last summer. The herb takes powerful hold on me, and I felt sort of garnt, a good deal like a canister when the powder is out of it. So I stirred in the tea and steeped it judiciously, and arter I'd boiled and eat the venison, I felt sort of full-like inside. I sat down for a good, cheerful drink. I cooled the cup to the right point and took a mouthful, but there didn't a drop of it get further than my back teeth, for I shut down on it sudden as hammer falls when the spring is a-strongin', and the trigger works quick to the finger. What was there in it? exclaimed the man. The devil was in it said the old trapper. Yes, the devil was in it, if a man can judge from the taste, for that water was full enough of sulfur to physic the settlements for a year. You found a sulfur spring, John Norton, said the man, laughing heartily at the description that the trapper had given of his experience. You found a sulfur spring, and sulfur has great remedial qualities in it. I didn't notice any such thing in it said the trapper, evidently in the dark as to what the term implied. I didn't find any such thing in it, but it may have been there all the same, for I don't know how them things taste, and if you say they was there, I won't dispute you. 
but it was infernal drinking for certain. I moved on over the ridge afore breakfast, till I came to the river of the Tumbling Falls, where me and the pups found a good healthy drink, and such as natural for men and beasts to quench their thirst with. But you was speaking about something you found in the water. What did you find in the water? We found, said the man, that every drop of water was a world in itself. It can't be. It can't be, said the trapper, for the man would drink the universe up, swallowing at that rate. <laughs> you don't understand, said the man. It is a figure of speech that I use, and they said that every drop of water was a world because it is full of living creatures, things that creep and swim and have eyes and structure, true organisms. Now you look here, friend, said the trapper. You be a little careful-like in your speech, for what you say is beyond reason, leastwise touching the waters in the woods here. It may be as you say touching the streams and the settlements, for I've noticed that men spoil the crater's work, and it may be that in the towns they do spoil the water that the Lord has made for man's comfort. But there ain't no live things in the spring back of the cabin here, for it's pure and clear and sweet, and you can go in the darkest night and drink of it without fear, for it's a flowing stream, and it comes from the cleft of the rock. And there is never a wiggler found in any such water as the pups will tell you, for they and me have drunk it by day and night, and we ought to know. And we won't discuss it, said the man, yielding good-naturedly and mildly to the trapper's earnestness. But I have a glass in my pocket with which I will show you what is in the water sometime, and the water of the spring you speak of, too, pure as it is. And we found also secrets in the air, forces and powers, full of terrible strength. That seems reasonable, said the trapper. For many a time I've seen the power of the Lord in the air. I've seen him set it on fire until the heavens flamed like the judgment, and I've heard his pieces explode louder than cannons when the battle is hot and the gunners ram a double charge. And I've seen the fires of the north flare up, as if the end of the world was burning, until the pups shivered with fear. Yes, I know there be powers in the air beyond the power of man, but they be powers of the Lord, and such as man cannot discover, and the tongue of man may not name. But they can be named, John Norton, and they can be discovered. And my benefactor and I analyzed the air and found what was in it, and we could separate its elements and bring its mysteries to light. The fires of the north, as you call them, are a wonder. And science, it is true, has not yet discovered their cause. But there is nothing in nature that man cannot discover if he be patient and studious enough in searching for the key that unlocks its mysteries. The old trapper had followed the speech of his guest with the greatest attention. The inquisitiveness of his own mind which had found a narrower and ruder sphere of exercise, was nevertheless so high in order that he could appreciate the same quality in the mind of another, although the field of exercise had been widely different from his own. You seem to have had a happy time of it in your studying with your friend. How long did you stay in the family? I stayed ten years, said the man. Was there any children in the family? asked the trapper. There was one child... Only one child, repeated the man, but no one who did not hear the words spoken could conceive the tenderness of the tone with which he had spoke, and no one who did not see his countenance as he said only one child 
could imagine that into a face of such peculiar appearance could come an expression at once so supremely gentle and so supremely sad. The old trapper was evidently puzzled how to continue the conversation, for he knew that his question had called up, if not unpleasant, at least sorrowful memories, in the mind of his guest, and his breeding was too fine in its natural courtesy, and his sympathies already elicited by the singular biography to which he had listened, too profound for his strange guest, sitting in front of him, to permit him to say, unless inadvertently, a single word that would be an intrusion upon the secrets of his life. The man had fallen into a musing mood, and silence reigned in the cabin. The fire burned low. The great logs, nearly consumed, weakened in the middle, and fell downward into the warm ashes and the glowing coals underneath, with many a spark and jet of flame. At length the man roused himself from his reverie and said, The motions of the mind are wonderful, John Norton, and thought is swifter than light. Sitting here in your cabin, in the midst of the wilderness, with a stretch of forty years intervening, my mind has journeyed back to the house of my benefactor. Again I have seen the face of his wife, who was to me as a mother. Again I have heard his voice, as it sounded to my ears long ago. And again I have seen, with all the vividness of her earthly appearance, when she was young and beautiful, the bright being that made the house in which we lived full of light and joy, the being that made me ambitious in my studies, whose hand waved me with encouraging gesture from knowledge to knowledge, and whose presence kindled the darkness of my life, into the radiance of hope. But the night is far spent, and I have kept you from your slumber. Some other time I will resume my story, if you desire to hear the tale of my life further. If you will give me a blanket, Lucky and I will sleep here by the fire. I doubt if among all the deeds you have done in your life, John Norton, you have ever done a deed of greater goodness than you have done tonight. For you have given a man and his dog that were hungry the food that they needed. They were freezing, and you have warmed them. They were without shelter, and you received them to your house. They were lonely, and you have cheered them with your companionship. Two of his creatures have you comforted, and the Lord will give you your reward in the great day. All of this was said gravely, and with that dignity of manner, which the simplicity of true, heartfelt gratitude gives to its utterance. Before speaking, the man had risen from the chair, and as he closed, he bowed to the trapper as one who would thus show his appreciation for the favors he had received, while Lucky, the dog, moved in front of the trapper's chair, and, fixing his eyes on the old man's face, wagged his tail gladly as he, too, would make some acknowledgment to his master's host. "'You be welcome, friend,' said the trapper, rising from his seat. "'You be welcome to what you have had.' and you be welcome to stay so long as you will. The days be short and the nights long, and at times it be a little lonely, though the pups be good company, and the boys come and see me off and on. There be skins in the cabin fit for a king to sleep on, and your bed shall be of the softest. So saying, the trapper placed a great roll of bearskins on the floor, and bringing a blanket from his own bed and a pillow for his guest, he retired to his couch from which the coming of the man had hours before aroused him. The man spread the skins in front of the fire, 
and adjusting the pillow, he gathered the blankets around him and prepared himself for slumber. His dog came to his side, sat down for a moment on his haunches, looked into his master's face, kissed it with his tongue, looked at the fire, wagged his tail happily, and stretched himself by his master's side. The man placed one arm around his body and yielded his senses to repose. The trapper, lying on his bed with his eyes on the two picture frames, also prepared for sleep. And so the two men, the one gazing at the objects which suggested the presence of those he loved, one on the earth and one above, but to his simple faith both equally alive, the other with his arm over the body of his dog, whose love had made him the companion of his wanderings, and the companion, too, in his wants, fall asleep. Outside the world was white and cold and still, no stain on the earth, no cloud in the sky, no sign in all the white expanse below or the blue expanse overhead that nature was conscious of human wants or human woes. But above the sky sat one who not only saw the two men sleeping in the cabin, the hounds on the hearth, the dog by his master's side, but all on the earth, whether waking or sleeping, whether happy or sad, not only saw but carried in his bosom their cares, their losses, and their sorrows, as if they were his own. End of chapter 3